Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Two weeks ago, the Jake Paul Getty Museum acquired Danai, a significant Orazio Gentileschi painting from about 1621. The painting, one of a three-painting set commissioned by Genoan nobleman Giovanni Antonio Sauli, joins one of the other three paintings in the set, Gentileschi's Lot and His Daughters, already in the Getty's collection. Joining me to discuss the painting is Judith Mann, a curator at the St. Louis Art Museum and a leading Gentileschi scholar. In 2001-02, she and Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Keith Christensen co-curated Orazio and Artemisia Gentileschi, Father and Daughter Painters in Baroque Italy, which opened in Rome before traveling to New York and St. Louis. The catalog for the exhibition may be downloaded for free from the Met's website. We'll have links to those on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, artist Hito Sterl discusses the role photographs play as a document of something that happened, or of something that may have happened. Sterl is a Berlin-based artist and filmmaker whose work often examines the mass proliferation of digital images. The Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles is presenting the American debut of Sterl's Factory of the Sun, a video installation in which Sterl examines image circulation. Factory of the Sun is on view at MOCA through September 12th. The conversation here on this week's show is from an April 2014 program we taped about what was then a just-released issue of Aperture magazine. But first, Judith Mann, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap Before You Look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Data, on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Data is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Judith Mann, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Start at the very top, I think. Who was Giovanni Antonio Sauli? Where did he live, and what did he ask Orazio Gentileschi to do? Well, Sauli was Genoese. He was in Rome and invited Orazio to come back with him to Genoa. He was a sort of scion of an old and very prominent family. So he commissioned from Orazio three glorious pictures, all featuring a sort of, in a way, a sort of sexual theme. The uh, penitent Magdalene, who to the 17th century was the archetypical reform prostitute, whether we believe that anymore, we don't, but that's how she was understood. And then there's a lot in his daughters, of course, this 
incestuous story about the promulgation of the uh, sort of race. And then Danai, who was locked away to prohibit her from having any kind of carnal relations, but Zeus found her and ended up impregnating her. So they're three very, very beautiful. I can't say that Orazio is your go-to guy if you want absolute eroticism, but nonetheless, these have that kind of beautiful, sensuous quality to them. You mentioned that, that Sally is in Genoa. Previous to this commission, Orazio is living in Rome. I guess this commission gets him to Genoa. Is that important in his story? Yeah. You know, my theory is that, you know, Rome was a very competitive place. I think that Orazio arrived there in the 1570s, and he, until his daughter Artemisia really came of age, I mean, he hadn't been doing that well. He didn't, he wasn't certainly heading up any major commissions, and I think he, you know, just needed to go somewhere else. I think by 1620, 1621, that uh, this offered him an opportunity, and, and on he went after Genoa, then he went to Paris, and then he ended up in London. So I think his career perhaps flourished in a certain way. You could argue that his very refined, very elegant, very, in some ways, classicizing uh, work uh, played very well in those centers, perhaps better than it might have in Rome, it's hard to say. So in a lot of ways, this commission was was really key for him. I, I think that's a, a reasonable, I mean, not that he didn't make some wonderful pictures before, but I think one could easily argue that in Genoa, Orazio really hit his stride. That was really the great pictures. I mean, nowadays, frankly, to many people, the more Caravages the picture is, the better it is. And perhaps when he was still in Rome, there was a more pronounced tie or influence by Caravaggio in some of his paintings. Some of his paintings are very Caravagesque. I think you can look at Orazio as being an artist who was very influenced by Caravaggio, but then added his own little sort of take on Caravagism, adding the sort of very elegant fabrics, very sophisticated treatment of surfaces and materials. So what I'm saying is some people might prefer those early pictures in the first decade or so of the 17th century that he made in Rome up to the 1615 or so. But for me, it's it's really the um, the pictures that he made in Genoa that are the the great ones. There's one in Hartford that's very beautiful, one in Detroit. So and then of course the two now at the Getty. So yeah, those are great. The catalog for the show you and Keith Christensen did the catalog which you you, you wrote and edited describes this painting, the New Getty painting, as, quote, one of Orazio's most brilliant creations. What makes it so good? I did. Those are Keith's words, uh, Keith Christensen. We sort of divvied up. I wrote on Artemisia, and he wrote on Orazio, and, of course, he's very good at this. You know, I mean, I looked, in preparation for the show, I looked at every painting that was attributed to Orazio as I began to prepare it, and then Keith did as well. And certainly, I think the combination of a beautiful composition, uh, I mean, there's just such an ease and elegance and grace to the figure, whether she is completely naturalistic, the, the reclining figure of Danai, not necessarily, but she's so 
beautiful. And the fabrics are just dazzling, as I keep using that word, but there really is this just lovely finesse, the delicate veiled lighting. You often, on Orazio's best pictures, you have this sense that the lighting, the light kind of caresses delicately any surface into which it comes into contact. And He's just masterful. To me, there are the two great Orazio paintings are this and then this very beautiful altarpiece of the Annunciation that is in the uh, Gallery Sabauda in uh, Turin. So those are the two. Those are the, the best of the best. So the Getty has really done a great thing in, in putting this picture in a, in a public collection where people can see it. You mentioned the textiles in this painting. Orazio moves to Genoa, which at the time was, was you know, maybe the textile capital of, of, of the region of, of, of what we now call Italy. Does he amp up his textiles, um, and particularly that amazing gold cloth in this painting, because he's in Genoa? It certainly could be the case. You know, he... You know, I'm just sort of running in my mind. The the beautiful transparent scarf that seems to kind of caress her hips, that seems to be a piece that he owned, whether he where he obtained it, where he bought it, but it does occur in other paintings, wrapped around heads, etc. So that may have been a studio piece. But I I I think that might have been very conscious decision. He certainly exploits this ability when he goes on into Paris, so it's not unique. The taste, at least, is not unique to Genoa, but it is certainly apparent in his, uh, he continues it in the French work, he continues it in the English work. But yeah, I, I, I wonder if that, in fact, is very directly related. You mentioned the, the third painting in, in the Sally Commission, the Mary Magdalene painting, a moment ago. There is a similarity between Danai's pose and, and Mary Magdalene's. They're not, you know, of course, exactly the same, but they're certainly similar. Uh, why? Well, as Keith was able to demonstrate when we did the show, he was able to get a number of museums to do tracings of the figure because this Mary Magdalene exists in quite a few copies. It's unusual to, or odd for me to think that of the three paintings, the Mary Magdalene is my least favorite. I think that there's a little kind of forced quality to the way she lies. But this was obviously very popular, partly because Mary Magdalene herself was a extremely important saint in the 17th century. But we know that he he used the tracings to replicate this pose. There would be variations and shifts, but we know that that was kind of the way he was working in his workshop. So there is a good reason why those poses uh, do appear. I mean, one could argue that maybe the intent was to present the, as they worked together to have this kind of echo of poses. We don't know. Maybe it was just expediting. You know, he had this great pose and he wasn't going to waste it. So why not reuse it? So savvy American art lovers and museum goers have certainly seen this painting at the Met where it's been on loan for, for a couple of years before it, it went on sale. But they also might know the painting from a version of it in Cleveland. What, if, if you remember, what's kind of different from the Cleveland painting and, and what is the relationship between what's now the Getty painting and the Cleveland painting? Yeah, I mean, they are very similar. The You don't get that beautiful gold drapery. It's been ch uh, changed to a kind of uh, green picture. I think the... Dimmer green even, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, there are, I think, you know, as I recall, maybe the in the Getty version, maybe in both, but I, I think in the Getty version, there are little images of Zeus on the coins, you know, making very clear the kind of idea of the myth. I'm wondering if they exist also, I guess they do in Cleveland, I'm trying to remember, but there's a slight difference in the tilt of the head. Again, the torso was kind of anchored in, but uh, some other shifts, the I think the body of Danai is not handled quite as well. The There's a kind of awkwardness in the structure of the hips that's more apparent. But And also, quite frankly, the Cleveland version, you know, no, no picture from the 17th century gets through this many years unscathed. But the Cleveland version, I think, has had a bit of a rougher life. So it's not in as good condition. And the Getty one isn't in perfect condition. Anybody can look. The drapery on her hips is a bit, it has been rubbed. Our former paintings conservator used to always tell me that, you know, he, he recommended glazing most pictures of nudes because people wanted to touch them more than other things. So, you know, it's kind of a, an inevitability, but nonetheless. So you have in in your museum at the St. Louis Art Museum a Danai. Who is your Danai by, and how did you kind of come to that attribution? Well, yes, that's a long story. I mean, it it currently we I and with along with a number of other scholars do attribute it to Orazio's daughter Artemisia. There are. There is, I guess, a still split among people who study the Genelesky as to whether this is either a painting by Orazio or whether it is a painting by another artist, perhaps Artemisia's daughter. There are various kind of uh, proposals. But really, to me, when you have the Getty picture and you have the St. Louis picture, it's hard to make them by the same artist. The Getty picture, for example, this beautiful figure of a very much idealized figure. Uh, her arms are a bit too long. She's not based exactly on observation. The way the breasts, uh, they're sort of perfect little cones that have been kind of perched there on her chest. It doesn't, although the fabrics have very much the sense of, you know, an actual fabric that you can touch and look at, it isn't a real woman. The Danai here, which is much smaller format and it's on copper, but it does look like it's based on the observation of how a real body behaves when it reclines on a horizontal surface. So that in itself seems to me to suggest that it's a different person, a different mentality, and also the interpretation of the story. The story is about a king who's told by an oracle that that his uh, daughter will bear a son, and this son will be his, the king's undoing. So, of course, the king, Acrisius, decides that he's going to make it so that his daughter, Danai, does not have any male suitors. So he locks her up uh, in a chamber or some kind of locked room. Zeus, the king of the gods, finds her, is taken by her beauty, transforms himself into golden rain, and then is able to impregnate her. Now, in the Orazio version, Danai is looking up. Their coins, which is the standard 17th century interpretation of the myth, they're no longer droplets of rain. They are rather coins. She's looking, but she doesn't really 
seem to be sort of aware, and the coins don't coincide exactly with the opening in the curtain, which light comes through. So it seems a bit odd that um, it doesn't all quite play together, but it makes a beautiful picture. I mean, it doesn't really matter. That's very much the way Orazio approaches a lot of narratives. He doesn't really think through how this has to happen. That's not the way Artemisia thinks. She's rather more practical in a certain way. And in her Danai, of course, it, it's a bit different. It doesn't have a little Cupid figure. It has a maid there. But you really have a sense, one, of a actual woman lying on a bed. But you also have this utter embrace of sexuality. I mean, Danai in the St. Louis picture, the coins are, are piling up in her, for lack of a better word, I usually use pedendum or crotch. But, you know, it there is a sense that she is engaged in the physical act of sex. And that is so far away from Orazio's thinking, just so utterly far away. But it's not far away from Artemisia's thinking because she pays close attention to stories and what she's representing. So I think they're, they're absolutely two very different interpretations of what was a rather popular story at the time. I, I went back into one of my very old now notebooks from a, a long ago visit to to your galleries and saw that I had written in all capital letters and, and underneath the title of your painting, Clenched Fist, which I think speaks to the eroticism you were just mentioning. There's nothing like the way Danai's right fist is clenched in your painting, in the Getty painting. Right. Right, nothing like that. And and truth be told, the, the pose of this Danai, the Danai here in St. Louis, is derived from a larger version of the same nude that was a Cleopatra. And But again, the Cleopatra, which was quite a large painting and a, quite a daring painting at that moment, has the snake wrapped around her wrist. And, it, and so she's clenching her fist and you can see her sort of thinking through at that moment when she's going to permit the ass. So she's called for this snake to be brought to her, but she's at the last minute kind of going through the final throes of, of deciding what she's going to do. And unlike most every 17th century artist in the picture of Cleopatra, they show the ass biting her breast. It adds a, a real kind of erotic layer to the whole thing. This story calls for the arm. It's on the arm. And so Artemisia is aware of that. And she's got this fist that she develops as a way of kind of struggling with the ass, but, but making it very clear that it's going to be the arm. So then she adapts that so brilliantly to the story of Danai. And so the snake obviously no longer is there, but she puts those coins and is um, there's a, a kind of popular article that's been written about this, uh, the Danai as a rape narrative. I mean, that's kind of ubiquitous for the 17th century. But Leo Steinberg, the great art historian, was here um, back in the 90s and, and when we were walking through the galleries, and he was the one who pointed out how successful a metaphor that was for the clenched fist and the coins have to be inserted into the fist. They don't, you, if you scoop up a group of coins, they don't just come spurting out between your fingers like that. But, so there is this kind of metaphor for the impregnation of Danai in that fist, and yet it also shows a kind of lust at work. So uh, it's, it's really a, a very sophisticated and, and wonderfully thought out picture. 
So, but not the way Orazio thinks. You mentioned the the clenched fist and the Cleopatra in Milan, and we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com. But the shading and kind of color difference from skin to the skin on the fist is identical between the Cleopatra and, and your painting. I mean, the color of the clenched fist is very different than uh, in both paintings than, than the rest of, of Danai's skin. Is there anything you can think of, because, you know, perhaps obviously I can't, that migrates from maybe father's Danai to daughter's? Well, Orazio's is later than hers. I mean, certainly that just his the way of doing the skin tones is, is certainly what Artemisia learned from Orazio. I mean, my take on Orazio and Artemisia and how they interacted was Orazio, as I kind of mentioned, wasn't really kind of leading the art world in Rome in the early 17th century. And then he has this amazing daughter and she can pretty much do anything he sets out for her to do. And so he he really trains her to be a second Orazio. And I think one of the reasons we have such difficulty in differentiating what she painted and what he painted during the time they're together, and I'm talking about basically 1605 or so she was born in 1593. So from the time she's 11, 12 to the time she leaves Rome in 1612, 1613, she is being a, a key part of his studio. She's producing paintings, probably a lot that we haven't found yet, that are in his style, that are, are maybe standard devotional pictures, things that at that moment were sold by dealers, things like that would be sold and, and widely popular. So Orazio was training her to paint exactly like he did, and the way she handles her skin tones, as evident in the Cleopatra and the Danai, is very much based on Orazio's. Now, not necessarily the decision to kind of make the, the fist kind of uh, almost kind of a little reddish, uh, kind of filled with blood, perhaps. Not that, but the just very subtle play and the very beautiful shading of the skin tones. I mean, Artemisia is capable of doing that and is trained to do so by her father. When she gets to Florence, which is the next stage of her career where she moves in 1613, she begins to branch out and is looking at other artists. But I think in Rome, in her early period, that's what she was supposed to do. So yes, she is very much replicating what her father does. We were talking earlier about coins and, and gold coins and how painters, many painters in, in, in many parts of Europe over many decades use, use coins in the visual presentation of this story. In Orazio's Danai, he has not just coins raining down, but kind of coiled ribbons of gold. Is, is that, I've, I, I don't know that I've seen that before. Is, is that unusual? Is that different? Does it mean something? It is unusual to the, the ones that I've seen. I think sometimes, I mean, actually, I can't say I've done a, a precise study, but my sense is sometimes there is maybe some coins as well as some maybe things that look kind of like little droplets of rain or just splashes of gold. But this sense of these kind of coiled ribbons that come down, I don't really know. I don't know. I mean, I've always noted that, and it's 
you know, it, Orazio is a visual artist, I think. I mean, he just thinks in terms of beauty. You know, he doesn't, as I said, always think quite practically. Some of his stories, there's a David about to decapitate Goliath, and, and David is holding the sword that no way could he possibly hold this sword in one hand. You're not terribly bothered by it. If you think it through, you recognize, wait a minute, I mean, one, it's it's a type of sword that's intended for use with two hands, but more importantly, it's just so big. Um, this is a painting in Dublin, but it's wonderful. You know, the composition is just great, and it, it's very triumphal, and it works. And that's kind of Orazio, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he just liked these sort of coils. It just sort of made this wonderful, and maybe it helped direct this shower of gold a little more specifically to Dan. I, I, I'm not quite sure, but, I mean, he could do it. <laughs> he did it, and he did it very well. And we like to look at his pictures. It's a great feature. It kind of gives that section of the painting a certain speed. It's pretty It's pretty neat. Judith Mann, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, it, it's always wonderful to talk to you, and I'm loving that you are paying attention to these uh, great uh, Baroque pictures. Laffer Art Museum is the exclusive North American venue for Mirrors for Princes, an evolving five-city exhibition of installations and sculpture by the art collective Slavs and Tatars. The show takes its title and conceptual framework from a medieval genre of advice literature for rulers that offered instructions, aphorisms, and reflections on how to rule a nation. See Slavs and Tatars, Mirrors for Princes, free January 16th through March 19th at Blaffer. More at blafferartmuseum.org. France's sun king, Louis XIV, decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the sun king's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. Welcome back. Now my 2014 conversation with Hito Sterl. At the time, Aperture magazine had just released an issue devoted to documentary photography. Sterl was included in the issue, discussing the role photographs play as a document of something that happened or that might have happened. She's a Berlin-based artist whose work often examines the mass proliferation of digital images. Now, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles is presenting Factory of the Sun, Sterl's video installation examining image circulation. It'll be on view through September 12th. Hito Sterl, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. In your email conversation with Thomas Keenan and Aperture, you and he explore the etymology of the word documentary. Did the roots of the word and where it's come from and how it's come to be used become interesting to you when, when you and he started talking for this magazine article, or did your interest in, in the roots of the word documentary go back much farther than that? You know, I think I've written about that in a book which was published in 2007, but since then I completely forgot about the etymology again. <laughs> it's not something that really sticks to your mind, so I was happy to revisit that again. 
but all discussions about etymology go, you could find any number of sources not to sort of have a historical linkage for the term document. So the one that Thomas picked, namely the meaning of the word Latin word docere, which is to teach, was an interesting, let's say, starting point from the for the conversation. One of the things you note is that when a photograph sp- spreads on, on social media, Facebook or Twitter especially, there are no fact checks, there are no evidentiary procedures and so forth. It's a photograph, it's accepted. So even though for almost all of photography's 160-year history, we've known that it is a manipulatable medium, we as as humans, I guess, tend to, to accept photographs as as visual documents. Why do you think we do that? That's a good question. I think that's, in a way, the primordial myth associated to photography, that whatever a photographic picture shows is somehow related via the so-called indexical link to something that really happened. Now, that always was a quite contentious claim, yet it's also hard to refute that, you know, photography very often managed to present aspects of reality. But I think that this whole discussion, which has been raging, I think, for at least 100 years, has become intensified with the development of social media and the way that photographs are being handled and accelerated and circulated on social media platforms, for example, or on the Internet. Because we see more of them, we challenge them less? Yes, but I think the real shift in importance or in meaning is that the content of the photograph, the scene that it purportedly shows, is becomes only one aspect of the reality of the photograph because the reality of the photograph is not only defined anymore by its content but by its spread, by its popularity, by the amount of times it's been clicked and liked and shared and forwarded. And this creates a whole new level of reality because we'll never exactly know what a photograph shows, no? On the content level, there will always be a level of doubt, but uh, its popularity now becomes quantifiable. We can, I mean, we can say for a fact that it's been shared, let's say, 2,050 times. So this is a new level, and this is quite important and sometimes also disturbing to follow. So are you suggesting that the mere fact that we can see a photograph has been shared or liked X thousand numbers of times lends it a certain veracity that it wouldn't have if it was being distributed, say, as a leaflet? No, no, no. On, on the contrary. I mean, the, the truth, in a, a, a photograph become, doesn't become more true or linked to a certain reality just by the virtue of being shared. But the photograph being shared becomes a new reality, which means that people can use the popularity of a photograph for political ends more easily than this was possible before. Yeah, that that raises what I thought was maybe the most interesting part of your back and forth. And you noted that, quote, a document on its own, even if it provides perfect and irrefutable proof, doesn't mean anything. 
If there is no one willing to back up the claim, prosecute the deed, or simply pay attention, there is no point to its existence. And it seems like you're coming close to suggesting that documentary photos are meaningless unless they are attached to a social network. I don't mean Twitter or Facebook, but a social network like you know the environmental movement or a political network. Yes. Sadly, I think this is true. Let me give you a very concrete example. So, I mean, throughout my whole, whole filmic work, I'm following the question of one person that literally disappeared in a case of enforced disappearance that used to be a friend of mine. Now, for years and years, I've been waving around documents or evidence pertaining to the disappearance of this person, yet there is there is, of course, no automatic response linked to this kind of evidence, right? If it's politically inconvenient, no one will go and follow up on these claims. So in that sense, evidence as such doesn't mean anything as long as it isn't amplified or backed up or followed through by legal or political means. Is that new? No, it's not it's not new. I just think the way the different methods in which to back up claims have changed through new media. It's not new at all. Yet I think there is always there's still a myth relating to evidence that basically showing or presenting it is kind of enough, but it is not. You and Keenan talk a lot about the currency of documentary photographs and how they're seen and read. But neither of you spends much time on individual photographers, which I, I, I know this issue of Aperture hasn't made its way to Germany yet, but that's a fairly common thing in the issue on this kind of emphasis of the editorial role in sifting through volume rather than an individual authorship. And I wonder if you're still interested in authorship or if you're more interested in in what we do about this volume of images i I don't have any general answer to that of course i'm interested in authorships i mean especially as it relates to my own practice you know there there is a huge set of questions which includes of course individual ethics responsibility what kind of things to show and to endorse and which not. So in, in from that point of view, of course, I'm interested in authorship. Yet I think that it would be difficult, at least for myself, of trying to conclude from the work of one individual author to more general social trends in photography. And also, I think the, the, the rise of mass anonymous image production has been one of the most interesting developments in the last more than one decade, I guess. Not only kind of anonymous, but often to the extent to which we know who has taken a given image, we know, you know, their Instagram handle or their, you know, just kind of a, a seemingly semi-teenaged <laughs> random set of numbers and letters that, 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 that can be attached to an image. Probably also the... I'm not really sure whether what I'm going to say is true or not, but maybe authorship has been sort of redefined also slightly in terms that it's not necessarily about, you know, capturing original content, but more about re recombining, rearranging pre-existing content. Yeah, that comes up a, a lot 
in 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 the issue and and the suggestion of it's in your conversation with with, Ke- with Thomas Keenan. And one of the things that that kind of comes through the issue is that a lot of the people, a lot of the thinkers in the issue come close to concluding that the role of the editor is now more important than the role of the picture maker. I mean, if we go back to to, to documentary photography of the early 20th century, the, the picture maker, him or herself, was most often the first editor, either through cropping the image or through deciding what image got, got printed, got physically printed. And I wonder if, if that's something that that you think has firmly and finally changed, that the role of the editor has, has superseded the role of the maker? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I always refer back to the title of Sigavertov's famous movie, The Man with the Movie Camera. And the question I always had to the film is, why isn't it called The Woman at the Editing Desk? <laughs> of course, you know, because you see both in the film. You see Gertos' brother, Boris Kaufmann, who is the man with the movie camera running around the city, capturing all these images of real life. But you also see Gertos' wife, Elisaveta Svilova, sitting in the editing room and organizing this footage. And I think even in his film, montage is much more important, the editing is much more important than the capturing or the production of the image. So I've always wondered why why the title of that film, right? Why the man with the movie camera? But I think the thing that's happened is that, you know, the the task of the editor has become much more important in several on several levels. First of all, because the whole range of of activities associated with post-production has become much more important. If you think of recent film production, for example, post-production is includes modeling, includes animation, includes all sorts of CGI to the extent that we could say that most of contemporary cinematic production is done in post-production nowadays, not in production. And I think that the role of the editor has also been expanded a lot because, you know, if you look at the practice of people like myself or documentary film practices, let's put it like that, I mean, many people have started doing it more or less on their own, combining both production and post-production, but also, you know, all sorts of other, other activities which were not related to filmmaking traditionally at all. So in that sense, I think, yes, the role of the editor has become more important. You know, in your in your conversation, you also posit kind of a third role, and that is the role of, of the interpreter. I'll, let me just quote a sentence to, to set that up. You write that, quote, images are not a matter for specialists anymore. Anyone can produce them in great numbers. So in a way, concerns have shifted from interpreting documents according to predetermined protocols to making and disseminating them. I guess the role of the interpreter is the one least or maybe most out of the control of of the people we think of as documentarians, as image makers and editors, because the interpreter is, you know, the person in front of their laptop. Absolutely. And I think the interpreter is the person that circulates the image, basically, nowadays, but also circulates them in very different ways, because there's many... Let's say new new situations under which this 
circulation has to take place. I think, for example, it's not about only making images public. It's also about keeping them secret sometimes. It's about knowing exactly which images to withhold or which images to circulate at certain moments in time. It's also, I think, a lot about encryption now, <laughs> about finding, let's say, safe connections for images to travel on. You know, the other thing about interpretation that really struck me when I read that sentence is a couple of weeks ago, I was looking through some photographs, I mean, hundreds of photographs, taken by Dorothea Lange, the, the great documentarian of the American West in, in the first half of the 20th century. And like you know, most other documentarians of, of her era, Lange believed very firmly and strongly in the caption. She spent a, a great deal of time in, in those 40 or 50 word passages that, that were typically kind of literally taped to the back of or glued onto or near her pictures. And with the documentary photography, both that that you and Thomas Keenan are discussing and that are in, in much of the rest of this issue, there are no captions, <laughs> which I just think is kind of may, maybe the biggest shift of all. That's correct, because this absolutely decontextualizes the imagery. It becomes a sort of floating debris almost, a remnant from a situation, <laughs> but you get hardly any clues to what the situation actually was or how to interpret it. For for an early 20th century documentarian like Lang, the point of taking the image and disseminating it was to share a particular point of view, whereas I guess in the end, one of the big thrusts of, of your conversation is that today, that's no longer the point. Today, the dissemination is the point. Mere dissemination. Yes. Yeah. I mean, let's say, I mean, the point, this is the tendency that I observe, that this is becoming more and more the prime role of this kind of photography. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt that there is hundreds, if not thousands, of very serious, you know, image makers around that are trying that basically haven't abandoned Lang's goal at all, right? But decontextualization is, of course, always a possibility. Hito Stale, thanks so much for talking with me. Okay, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.